This is Voices of Public Health, the JSI podcast. Hello, I'm Luca Chikuba from Zambia. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Penelope. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. So you grew up in Zambia. Mm-hmm. Tell me what your family was like growing up. Um, I grew up in a very large family, relatively large family, a family of 10 children. I have two brothers, um, one late, and I have seven sisters, and I'm the third of the 10. And did you grow up in the city or in a rural area? We grew up in a rural area in a farm, on a farm. Uh, we, we, we were rural children, village children, so to say. And so your dad was a farmer? My dad was a teacher. Both my mom and, and my dad were teachers, but they were also farmers. They were teachers in a rural area, so they taught and they were also farmers. They, they, they managed a farm. And did you grow up having to help on the farm? Absolutely. That was a bad breaking work growing up. I think most people who grow up on a farm have to do that. And, you know, I, 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 you, know you hate it when you're young, having to get up very early in the morning to go to the field, having to help out at home, drawing water. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have running water. So we had to go and fetch water, go and fetch firewood, and, and prepare food on um in the open fire, so it was a fun, so it was tough as well. So. so how did you find your way to public health from growing up in a rural community <laughs> on a farm? Uh, my parents were both very, very strict about school. And my dad and my mom, to a certain degree, they, they both insisted that we had to work hard at school. And they both told us that uh, we could be whatever we wanted to be. They were were liberal in that sense. They were not very directive. They just let us choose our own path and and decide what we wanted to be. But they absolutely insisted on working very hard. And and I did work hard. I went to secondary school and then uh, I went to university. When I finished university, when I finished my, my, my pre-med, I went into medical school and, and did my medical training in Zambia and then worked both for the government. I did my internship in a government hospital, the University Teaching Hospital, which is the biggest hospital in Zambia. And then because part of my education was sponsored by the electricity utility in Zambia, the company that um, provides uh, electricity in the country, um, I, I, I was also working part-time for the electricity utility in their clinics. So I was their medical officer part-time and then part-time working in the government hospital. So then how did you move from medicine to public health? I, I did my medical training at a very difficult time in, in Zambia. Um, I finished my medical school in 1990 and um, the first case of HIV in Zambia was diagnosed in 1984. By the time I was doing my final year in medical school, by the time I was doing my internship in 1991 and 1992, we were seeing a very significant HIV epidemic in Zambia. I, I, I worked from 1990 to 1995 at a time when we were seeing the toll of HIV really very explicitly everywhere in the country. Uh, And uh, if you were working in the medical field, you were in the front lines. 
Um, the thing about being a doctor at that time was that you felt so helpless. Really? All you did was get patients with HIV and you literally managed their opportunistic infections and then you held their hands as they died. There was nothing else you could do. You, 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 you just provided what care you could and then you, you watched them die and you buried them. I think for me, one of the most difficult aspects was that, um, yes, I worked in a government hospital, but I worked also in a company hospital because uh, of my affiliation with the electricity utility. And in a company setting, it's a finite number of people. You get to know them. They're your colleagues, they're your workmates. Uh, um, and because you're the company doctor, you get to meet their wives, you get to meet their children, and then they get sick. And you, continue, you, you start burying one, you bury the second, you bury the third. And it, it's, they're people you know, they're friends. So you're literally burying colleagues and friends, and that was very tough. I remember in 1993, uh, after a particularly bad month, I think we lost about three people at Zesco. That's the electricity utility in Zambia that month. I, I went home and I told my dad, uh, I cannot do this anymore. I, I cannot. I'm not helping anyone by being a doctor. I'm, I'm just sitting there and, and, and just watching people die. There isn't anything I can do. And my dad, I remember, he said, okay, you're telling me you cannot do this anymore. Who do you think is going to do it? So I thought I was going to go there and he would say, okay, you can stop being a doctor. But my dad as well, very tough, very strict. He just said, I understand your pain, but this is your job. This is what you've been put in place to do at this specific time. There is a purpose to every uh, uh, step that we take in this life and this is your purpose so you, 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 uh, you cannot come to me and tell me you can't do it because if you can't do it who's going to do it and I, I, I remember just thinking he was very right that's what I was supposed to do so at the time you thought that yeah after he rebuked me because you know I was being self-centered I was thinking about myself I wasn't thinking about the need out there I was just uh, feeling that uh, I had reached the end of my tether. This is as much as I could do. But um, Zambia has very few doctors. If I left, if I stopped doing what I was doing, who was going to do it? So my dad was very right to give me a slap on the, <laughs> on the, on the metaphorical face and, 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 ask, and, and just tell me to, to get on with it. And, and I got on with it. But it got me thinking that... Uh, what we were doing in medicine was, uh, if I use another metaphor, was actually fishing people who had fallen into the river and trying to save them. That's what I, you know, and, and my thinking was, why can't we stop these people from falling into the river in the first place? And the more I worked, uh, under those circumstances, the more convinced I became that 
for me, public health makes a lot of sense because public health, you're looking at the community and trying to prevent illnesses. You mitigate, but you also prevent. So I, I, I it made very good sense in, that, in those particular circumstances for me to go and work in the area of public health and work in prevention. Uh, I just thought I'd rather do what I can to prevent people from falling into the river rather than go and fish them out of there. So there were public health professionals in the area where you were working, so you'd seen them, or how did you come to have an understanding about what public health really was? A lot of it was research because we were dealing with a new epidemic, mm -hmm. um, we were dealing with HIV, and um, you, you, you read around, you, 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 you research, uh, even if we're in a resource limited setting, there isn't, a, internet is, it was very, uh, uh, you didn't have very good access to internet to do research, but you went to the library, you talked to uh, um, seniors in the field, uh, senior medical officers, and they put you in touch with people who were working in the in the area of public health. So that's what I did. Uh, they, they put me in touch with people who were working in the area of public health. I went to one of my mentors and I just told him that I felt that uh, for me, the best fit would be for me to go into public health and work in disease prevention rather than in, in medicine proper. And he was very understanding and he put me in touch with people who could help me. And you came here to the States to get yes. your master's in public health. Yes. So how did that come about? Uh, it was um, a, a grant from the electricity utility. They, they gave me a grant to come and do my master's in public health. So they, they basically sponsored me. And uh, I, I decided I was going to do a, a focus in international health and epidemiology. So that's what I did. I got my master's degree in international health at Boston University. Then I finished off with my master's degree in epidemiology at Harvard School of Public Health. Okay. And when you came here to Boston, was that the first time in the States? Very first time in the States. So how was that? That right. was... Must <laughs> have been a culture shock. It was a culture shock, uh, you know. Let alone winter. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. When we, 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 we came um, to register for... For, for the international health class, uh, we were most of us from abroad. We're not Americans. The class was half American, half international students. And we came from, most of us came from settings where doctors were regarded as, you know, some peop somebody you look up to. And suddenly here we were, and uh, it was a culture shock. It was a different environment, and uh, it took me time to adjust, but I loved it as well. Yeah. The first winter was tough, was tough. And, uh, you know, I remember in May walking from class uh, to, to the house where we were living, and I started skipping like a little girl. And, and, and then I said, I don't know what is wrong with me, but I feel like... I am alive again. And then this American friend of mine said, was this your first winter? So I said, yes, it was my first winter. And she said, that's what happens. You were depressed because of the winter. Now you're, you're skipping because you're, <laughs> you're glad spring is here. And I realized that, you know, the winter in Boston is tough. It takes its toll. It takes its toll. <laughs> you get used to it. You get used to it, yeah. yeah. And I love Boston now. 
That's good. Mm. So um, you got your MPH or two MPHs? I got my MPH and the Master of Science. Oh, Master of Science. Okay. And then what did you do? I decided um, that the, the electricity utility phased out its medical services. So I didn't have a job to go back to. So I, I decided, okay, if they phased out their medical services and I don't have an immediate job to go back to, why don't I do an internship and just get some practical experience working in the U.S.? And um, that's how I got an interview at the state lab with the Department, Massachusetts Department of Public Health. And I got a job at the state lab working with Andrew Fulham. He recruited me. Ah, and uh, <laughs> don't think I knew that. Yeah, he recruited me. And uh, uh, part of my job at the state lab was uh, characterizing the HIV AIDS epidemic among immigrant populations in Massachusetts. So you were surveying immigrants who had HIV or the whole population? What were you doing with that? Our job at the state lab was to characterize the epidemic. We're not really providing services, okay. so really getting the data on HIV AIDS and putting it together and uh, producing statistics that informed service delivery. So my job was to look at the epidemic among immigrants, particularly African immigrants, mm -hmm. and then from the data help to design programs that we could put in place to respond to the HIV AIDS epidemic among immigrants. Uh, they had the highest rates of HIV. Uh, Africa had the highest rates of HIV globally. But even here in Massachusetts, when you looked at African immigrants, they had the highest rates of HIV even here. Really? More than MSM? More than MSM. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to put in um, specific programs to address that. And then you, Andrew brought you here? Did he, did he bring you to JSI? How did and you get to then JSI? I was, I, was, I was thinking, this is the time you said you were going to do an internship. This is the time to start thinking about going back home because um, my education in Zambia Medical School was completely free. The country pays everything for you. You, you do not pay anything to go to primary school, to secondary school, at that time, to university. The, 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 the government paid for you and I was starting to think you've got to go and give back you received a free education even your graduate uh, education was free so it's time to go back you know you have a voice your dad is speaking <laughs> right there saying if it's not oh, you yeah, who's sure. going to do it so I was thinking about uh, transitioning and, and going back home and then I got a call from Andrew and he said um can you come over? I want to discuss a, a job opportunity with you. And I came over, and it was the perfect job opportunity for me. He wanted me to, to come and run a project that was uh, working in a number of developing countries in Africa and Asia, taking the first HIV treatment services to Africa and Zambia. That was in 2002. And uh, it was through Columbia University, and our role was to help to maintain quality of service to do quality monitoring and quality control on the MTCT Plus project. We were among the, uh, Columbia University was among the pioneers in taking HIV treatment to, to Africa. 
you had seen the perspective, obviously, in Zambia when you were a doctor there, and then here of African immigrants here, and then that work. So what's sort of the trajectory and the differences, I would say, in what you saw with HIV in Zambia and here? Were there many? The, the biggest difference is that Africans who had HIV here had access to treatment. They had access to all sorts of services. Of course. And um, I remember um, uh, my, my brother, my, our firstborn, uh, later on died of HIV in 2004. But at the time when I was working here, part of the reason why I stayed here was because I was buying ARVs and sending ARVs so that he could live a little longer. So the difference is that in Africa at that time, we still had no access to treatment. And uh, here you had access to treatment, very good treatment. You had access to prevention services, very good prevention services. And you had access to other support services that um, people needed, those who were living with HIV, in order to live an so has the situation changed in Zambia now? Changed completely. Uh, good. <laughs> for the better, very, very good. Uh, when we started implementing the MTCT Plus project, we developed evidence that you could actually do HIV treatment in Zambia because at, before services were started in Africa, there was concern that if you took HIV treatment services to Africa with in a resource limited setting like that, you run the danger of not providing the treatment to the quality standard that is required and then you develop resistant HIV and then would have the problem of perhaps recirculating HIV that's already resistant to the at that time limited drug regimen recirculated globally and that was why there were people who felt that we couldn't do that it would be irresponsible to do that but through the MTCT plus project that JSI and Columbia University were involved in we were actually able to demonstrate that you can actually do quality treatment in Africa and with that evidence services became more available and especially through PEPFA which um, uh, President Bush signed, uh, right now people have access to life-saving treatment through PEPFAR and when I, I had the opportunity to meet President Bush when he came back uh, with his wife after he left office, they, they, they were visiting Zambia and uh, I, I thanked him for PEPFAR. The, the, the 30 seconds you're given to right. say hello, right. I thanked him for Pepfa because I, I feel that he, he saved so many people. It was the best thing he ever did for Africa. He saved so many people and continues up to today. He's, what, what he put in place continues to provide life-saving treatment for so many. So you moved back to Zambia when? 2006? Six, seven? 2007. Um, so I, I, I had opportunity to work in Zambia through the MTCT Plus project. Um, uh, Zambia was one of the countries that I was looking after, among other countries in, in, in Africa. And 
when the opportunity arose to actually go back to Zambia and work in Zambia, I grabbed the opportunity and, and uh, went back to Zambia in 2007 to run the Share One project, support the HIV response in Zambia project. And um, the Share project ended in 2010, and uh, USAID liked what we did in that project, so they refunded us through the Share Two project to continue doing the work we, we were doing in Share One with a, a few modifications, uh, primarily for us to focus on developing leadership capacity for HIV, that is Zambian leaders, leadership capacity for HIV. And we were working with traditional leaders, political leaders, religious leaders, just to make sure that they're providing the leadership that is required for the country to be successful at HIV prevention and treatment. So what were some of the challenges working at those different levels of leaders? Politicians, I assume, you said traditional leaders, so those are chiefs mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the challenges that they were facing in, I suppose, playing a leadership role around HIV? I think all of them, to be perfectly honest, were aware of HIV. We were asking them to provide leadership around HIV, and we were not equipping them to provide that leadership. So they sort of didn't know what they to say They didn't know what to or? say. They didn't know what to do. And, and uh, without giving them appropriate messages, you run into a risk of them giving the wrong information or information that it doesn't even tally with the national HIV AIDS response. So our role in SHARE 2 was to provide correct and consistent messaging to these leaders. And that work produced a lot of results, particularly among the chiefs, the traditional leaders. The other leaders, the religious leaders and the political leaders, um, they're more at a remove, but the chiefs actually live in rural communities with their people. Every time someone is born, a chief is told that there is a new baby born in, the, in, in, your, in your chiefdom. Every time someone dies, they're told that someone has died and they attend most of those funerals. They buried scores and scores of their people from HIV AIDS. And they were desperate to do something for their people to prevent HIV or to mitigate HIV. There are 280 plus chiefs in Zambia, chiefdoms in Zambia. And we could only work with about 35 in the lifetime of the project. And um, the 35 that we helped, up to now, they go to USAID and they say thank you for that support. And um, they're responding more appropriately to HIV now in those chiefdoms that we worked in. And uh, USAID is receiving requests every day from the other chiefs we didn't support. For, for them to be supported, to enable them to respond appropriately to HIV. And USAID is actually thinking of coming up with another project that will work with the chiefs. Excellent, that's yeah. good. So in Zambia, what you've seen um, over time is now there are ARVs and mm -hmm. medicine available, mm -hmm. and where the leaders are being equipped with messaging. Mm -hmm. Are there other prevention things? You said you wanted to get into public health as a preventive measure to mm -hmm. stop people falling in the river. Mm -hmm. Are there other things that you've seen are working in Zambia? 
When you look at our epidemic right now, we have opportunities and we have gaps. We have a situation where HIV begins in adolescent girls and young women. Their infection rates are so much higher than those of adolescent boys and young men of the same age range. So one of the challenges that we have is to try and prevent HIV infections in adolescent girls and young women. What it means is that they are acquiring HIV infection through sexual intercourse, but they are sleeping, they're having sex with older men. And then when they are ready to get married, they, they start to marry uh, men of their own age, and therefore they pass on HIV to the men of their own age. So. The opportunity that I see right now is that if we can prevent HIV among adolescent girls and young women, we can help a generation to a significant proportion of one generation to grow up HIV free. Because the men, the adolescent boys and young men are, are HIV free, predominantly HIV free in that age range from 15 to 24. So for me, the challenge is how do we keep them HIV-free through their older years? And part of that is making sure that the girls who they will eventually marry remain HIV-free. So we, we have, um, we have a, a significant proportion of what we are doing in the project I'm working on, which is Discover, is to try and solve some of these conundrums, some of these nuances in the HIV-AIDS epidemic and be more targeted so we can be more effective. So surely you have to go for the older men as yes. well as the girls. Yes, yes. It does remind me, the way you're describing it, what worries me as someone who's worked in family planning for so long is family planning, it's really all about the girls, right? I mm -hmm. mean, because the girls are the ones who get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And whatever you do to try to target the guys to use you know condoms or not have sex or what have you it's still you know the girls who bear the brunt and it sounds like it's still the girl with HIV it's still the girls bearing the brunt they bear the brunt and uh, part of what we are doing in discover we, we are actually going to be doing a study uh, targeting the men to see if we can characterize the men who are having sexual relationships with adolescent girls and young women. Mm -hmm. And then find out from them what we can do to prevent their transmission of HIV to these girls, what we can do to prevent uh, unplanned pregnancies among these girls. So we are, we are looking at uh, their partners who are working with the adolescent girls and young women themselves our role is to work with the men, target our interventions at the men. I hope they will <laughs> be helpful. I'm just reminded of, uh, at a previous company I worked for, they had a big project in South Africa, and the head of the project, who was South African, said, you will never get a South African man to use a condom, so you have to find another way to prevent HIV. And by the way, a year later, he impregnated his secretary. There you go. Uh, it's, it's these uh, masculinities and uh, these perceived norms that we feel that we cannot change. We can change. Yeah.
we can change. When we were working with traditional leaders, they helped us to change some of these norms. And I think, you know, JSI in Zambia has really garnered a lot of experience in how to implement programs that are effective, that are cutting edge. Nobody has done it before, but we are willing to take the plunge, the first step, and see if it will work. So we are going to have to do that through the Discover project to just find a way to make these men change the way they, they, they behave. So you have hope? We have hope. And uh, a very good team, by the way, <laughs> back in Zambia that is going to try and do this. Excellent. Do you look and see, are there other countries that have done well and, and have model programs that you've looked at that you think are helpful that Zambia, programs that Zambia could learn from? You know, like you've said, I think most of the countries in the region in Southern Africa have focused on girls and women. So we really do not have a lot of experience in working with men. And we are all now recognizing that we cannot win this battle without bringing men on board. And a number of studies are being commissioned by USAID actually, and we, JSI, has been asked to do the study in Zambia to look at how you engage men in order to prevent HIV uh, among adolescent girls and young women. And so make sure we, that this generation of adolescent boys and young men also remains HIV free. And then we all learn from each other. We all learn from each other. We, we have to begin somewhere. So you've been working for USAID funded programs. Mm -hmm. I assume there are other donors working in Zambia. Yes. Do you see different approaches with the different donors? And if so, how does that impact the programs, do you think, or the work being done? Are there some, are, you know, USAID has its way of working. Are there other groups that are doing work that you think are particularly effective? Uh, when you look at the donor universe in Zambia, we've got uh, USAID, CDC, um, which are the major uh, US government agencies. Then we, we've got DFID from the UK. Uh, we've got the European Union. Now that is Brexit, it's truly the European Union and DFID on one hand. Uh, but um, the European Union, DFID, Japan, and the other donors mostly put their money into government. Uh, they put money in a basket and, and uh, government then implements programs. We've had USAID and CDC, on the other hand, work through projects like ourselves. They fund international organizations mostly, uh, like JSI, to implement programs on their behalf. Uh, in a situation like Zambia, sometimes fiscal responsibility is a problem within government. We had a government employee misappropriate huge sums of donor funding for health. Uh, about three years ago, three to four years ago. And that just eroded donor confidence. The, 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 the donors who put their funding into the basket fund just felt that their money was just being misused. So there are pluses and minuses. If, if a government behaves responsibly, if all government employees behave responsibly, I think putting funding into a basket fund 
would be a good thing because government then can prioritize and decide where to spend the money. But when fiscal responsibility is not there, then I think the best bet is working through international organizations because we're held accountable, very strictly accountable for the funding that we receive and we're held very strictly accountable for the targets that are set for us. So the government of Zambia recognizes that there is room for partners like ourselves to implement programs and they, they do recognize that uh, sometimes it's a good thing. Uh, in fact, through Discover, they've actually gone a step further. They asked the US government to help them expand service delivery, direct service delivery, which normally government holds onto strictly. They don't want partners to be doing direct service delivery. But in Zambia, they asked USAID to do that if, if, if they, USAID could, could find a partner to do direct service delivery to help take services to currently underserved pockets of the population or government gets its act together. So there is room for both and both can be effective. But for the, for the, for the basket funding mechanism, you need very strong fiscal government, management. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So doing direct service delivery, is that something that JSI is doing or you're working with local NGOs on the ground? How's that happening? It's JSI that's doing it. Um, we were actually funded to work outside the public sector, work outside the government hospitals and find those pockets of the population in Zambia that are not currently served by the government hospitals because there are pockets where distance to a government hospital is so far that people do not access services because there are challenges of transport to get to the facility and, and other challenges. So people just stay with their ill health until it's, it's very, very late. So we were funded to go to those pockets where services are few and take services and provide services to those pockets. And um, we are funded to do direct service delivery. JSI employs uh, the doctors, the nurses, the pharmacists, the lab technicians, buys equipment, buys the vehicles that help to go and deliver so do services. So you have mobile vans or we have mobile, mobile vans, hospitals? Or? Mobile hospitals, and we, we take services to those areas. We are actually the ones who are doing direct implementation of services. So how many communities are you reaching? We've been, we've been funded to uh, establish 200 outreach sites countrywide. 200 sounds like a small number, but it's a huge deal because you have to buy equipment, you have to buy everything you need for that particular site to run for the next five years. It's like you're establishing a mini hospital for each of these 200 outreach sites. And you have to have the staffing, you have to have the equipment, you have to have the furniture to provide services in that site. And that site becomes permanent for the next five years of the project. So it is a huge undertaking. The only thing that we get from the government is um, drugs. We draw from the Medical Stores Limited. Uh, we use public sector drugs in order to provide services. And is the goal at the end of the five years that the government will take over these outposts that you've That started? is the goal. That's okay, so that's we, the sustainability. That's the sustainability okay. angle. We, we felt that we couldn't establish these sites 
uh, and then after five years just leave yeah. and leave nothing so what we did was we went to our funder we went to USAID and we said yes you've asked us to do outreach services to these 200 sites but we would like you to consider putting up prefabricated units rather than asking us to provide services in tents which you can dismantle in a day and you're gone we would like you to allow us to put up prefabricated units and we will consult government as we are putting up these units and at, towards the end of this project we'll hand over the prefabricated units which are actually hospitals right. and the government can continue providing service and the government loves that USAID has right. accepted to do it and they love it as well so that's the sustainability angle we are going to hand over to government so government will have 200 more health posts by the time we're closing this project that's great yeah. and are you using new technologies or digital or mobile health being used at all in this work we have had to take a leap of faith and um, introduce an electronic medical record because we have to move from our hub to go to each outreach site to provide services uh, our vehicles can only hold so many people we cannot take data entry clerks take there is not enough room in our vehicles to do that so in order to get rid of some of these or avoid some of these additional staff, we've had to think through how we will implement services. So we're using an electronic medical record so that the clinician enters data, service delivery data, as they're providing service. So they, in fact, become the data entry people. And how's that going? Or it's early on? Touch wood. <laughs> early on. We'll see how it works, yeah. Okay, good. Mm. So are there people who've worked in HIV in your 30 years you've been doing this work who stand out in your mind over the years as game changers, people who've really made a difference or who you've been able to look up to in the work that you're doing, you see as role models? Yes, there are a number of people. I'll mention a couple. Uh, one of them is right here in JSI. I think for me, Andrew Fulham has led by example. He, he he's, a, he's, he's openly HIV positive. He's someone who speaks from experience. And I respect Andrew uh, for what he has done. He's, he's mentored me in JSI. But, you know, he's provided leadership to so many of us in JSI, technical leadership, but also leadership uh, in terms of how you you can use your circumstances to achieve greater good. When I was doing my public health education, uh, I met Jonathan Mann, he was one of my lecturers before he died. He totally, completely changed my worldview. Why is that? Uh, it, it's just the way he understood this epidemic and the way he went about to provide leadership around HIV AIDS uh, arena. Completely, completely changed my worldview about HIV AIDS. He, he taught me and uh, uh, it was a privilege. An honor, an honor to know him. Both him and Andrew, it was yeah. a privilege. It's a privilege to have, known, to have worked with them. 
What do you think the future holds for Zambia around HIV? Do you, th do you think it's realistic that we'll get to know new infections in the next 20 years? 50 years? What's the target? What's the UNAIDS target? 2030? Yeah, uh, I, I don't think it's realistic, not in, 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 in Zambia, not right now. Uh, I think we have to get a handle on HIV prevention. We, we are providing HIV treatment, which is effective HIV prevention, but no new infections. We've got to put in place other measures, particularly around our norms and culture to make sure that we protect those who are vulnerable from being infected. Our culture sometimes um, facilitates HIV transmission. Uh, we talked a little bit about men, older men and adolescent girls and young women. That's a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. uh, not wanting to use condoms, that's a cultural thing. Uh, and those people are the hardest in other things to change. Those are the hardest things to change. People in other countries are not having any less sex than Zambians are, but they're using protective measures, and this is why the HIV epidemics in other countries, particularly in Western countries, is not as bad as we have in Zambia. It's, it's, it's some of these are cultural things that we need to put in place and we need to change. Where do you see countries that have been able to? make those cultural shifts. Are there places that have done that, in, in Africa, that have done that? I think we, we, we are making those cultural shifts even in a country like Zambia. We're just not doing it fast enough. So when we are looking at 20 years down the line, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't think so. Uh, we can change, but we need to speed up our rate of change in order to achieve impact in, in those changes. Good luck with that. What do you do to relax? You clearly work very hard in a very <laughs> difficult, um, you know, area, you know, seeing, seeing this all, you know, throughout these years. What do you do to relax? I read a lot. I, I read. I read a lot. I love reading. I love golf. You play golf? I play golf. I have no idea. I, I do. I do. I watch golf and I play golf. So uh, I love I, 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 I couldn't play to save my life, but I go there, my weekend hack, and I go there for the weekend. And you have fun. And I have fun, yeah. That's most important. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Well, Luca, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Penelope. Thank you for listening to Voices of Public Health, the JSI podcast.